platform for an in-depth look in economic matters with leaders and decision makers. This is BizTalk. Hello and welcome to this edition of BizTalk. I'm Guanxing in Beijing. As we ushered in a new year, the world is witnessing unprecedented shifts in economic dynamics. And China, as world's second largest economy, continues to play a pivotal role in shaping the global economic order. And today, we're honored to be joined by two prominent economists who will provide valuable insights as we delve into the prospects and challenges that lie ahead for China and the world economy in 2024. Our esteemed guests include Professor Li Daokui from Tsinghua University, a leading authority on Chinese and global economy, and a distinguished U.S. economist, Professor Thomas Sargent, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2011 for his groundbreaking contributions to the field. In the first part of our discussion, Professor Li Daohui joins us from Beijing, offering his expertise and perspectives on the economic landscape in China and its implications for the global economy. Welcome to the show, Professor Li. Thank you very much for having me. The World Bank is expecting 4.5% for 2024. What is your target for the economy if China can do the right thing? Well, I would say most realistically, the Chinese economy will be running at the pace of 5%, mm-hmm. 2024, 5%. Now, why is that? Oh, well, I think it's because um, the Central Economic Work Conference actually laid the ground for a very uh, very uh, uh, proactive policies in various areas, various forms in a property market, the physical policy, monetary policy, industrial policy, uh, so on and so forth. So mm. 5% is the number I, I counter, I, I forecast for 2024. Mm. And that gave us much needed confidence at this stage. And Professor Lee, let's talk a bit about global environment, which is uh, full of challenges this year. And in context of global supply chain dynamics, how is China adapting its manufacturing and trade strategies to navigate disruptions? Well, China has been adopting a two-fold policies, two-fold, two-hands policies. The first aspect of this policy is to try to work with the U.S. and the European uh, governments to mm. stabilize to stabilize uh, the, the the potential economic uh, conflict. Uh, in other words, try to maintain the already uh, mature and ongoing uh, supply chain uh, between China and Europe and the U.S. So China has made uh, a lot of efforts, and China will continue making such efforts. The second aspect of China's trade policy is to try to um, uh, re, re, uh, redeploy, re- encourage the, re- the encourage the redeployment of China's supply chain to other countries and um, to, um, to to um, to hedge to hedge against the uh, U.S. European uh, policies. More, more specifically, uh, China's industries are being uh, gradually moving to uh, Vietnam and to Mexico and also other Southeast Asian countries. And mm-hmm. notice, not all not all production lines are out are moving out of China. It's only part of that, part of Chinese supply chain is now being re- redeployed redeployed 
to uh, Mexico and to Vietnam as a way to side pass, to side pass, to, to hedge against the U.S. Uh, uh, trade uh, restrictions against mm. Chinese products. So notice again, it's part of that. So move part of production to these countries, Mexico and Vietnam, so that the, the, the products finally can be shipped to the U.S. market uh, without being labeled as being made in China. Hmm. Well, the government has been talking about counter-cyclical adjustments, but I have the feeling that the government is rather prudent in its either monetary policy or fiscal policy because China's fiscal budget is said to be uh, remain at around uh, just three percent. Do you think there are room for more expansionary policies and how to prevent financial risks if the government tries to do that? In fact, I I, I believe. Our government, the Chinese government, uh, should be uh, more proactive. In other words, the government is overly cautious, excessively cautious. Why is that? Uh, let me say this in a very simple language. The Chinese central government is the, by far, the richest, richest mm. uh, central government in the world, having lots of financial assets. For example, the central government in China, through the Ministry of, of Finance, holds uh, majority shares uh, or significant shares of um, the five largest commercial banks, which are among the most profitable commercial banks in the world. Mm. And these commercial banks have shares listed in the stock market. And also our central government, through the Ministry of Finance, holds shares of the three super profitable mobile phone operators and also the central government holds shares of uh, petrol china and um, and uh, uh, sinopec these oil companies uh, and the sino construction so on and so forth the the super super profitable firms most of them most of them have uh, uh, their significant shares being held by the central government Meanwhile, our central government, the Chinese central government, only holds uh, in the amount of 20% of GDP as central government debt. I propose our central government spend much more money, mm. issue, uh, have, have issued more debt, issue much, much more debt. And also by issuing central government debt, the central government should take over uh, some of the local government debt in order to... Uh, uh, rejuvenize, rejuvenize the, the 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 public finance of local governments. So, mm. so, so my point is that the, at my long answer boils down to one sentence: that is, our Chinese central government should be much more proactive when it comes to physical policy, and their very solid, very good economic analysis. Uh, do you think we should have higher expectations because that could lead to more investment uh, from the corporate side and also more consumption from consumers? Uh, absolutely. Okay, there are several things the government uh, uh, should do. And uh, to a large extent, the government is now uh, making decisions on. Uh, the first thing is to uh, find a way to subsidize consumption. Notice I call subsidized consumption, not subsidized income. Okay, these are different things. Okay, in other words, Give people a discount, a paid out a government budget. Give people a discount when people are deciding uh, that they are consuming. So in other words, when you go to a cashier, 
in a department store. Uh, somebody from the government uh, tells the cashier, oh, um, Miss Wan, you get um, a 10% discount uh, thanks to the government policy. Well, that way you are more willing to consume, especially if you know this beforehand. If mm. you go before going to a department store, you are told that there is a 10% uh, discount given by the central government. You'll be happy to, you'll be more happy to consume. That's the first thing I think I, the government can do. Second thing is to stabilize the property market. Mm. Okay, to get rid of to get rid of the um, purchasing required restrictions uh, in cities like Beijing and Shanghai, which were imposed uh, in 2012 when the property market was super hot. But today, the, the very few people in China are counting on the property market as a means of investment. So we needed to get rid of uh, housing uh, purchasing re uh, restrictions. That's mm. the second thing the government and do the third thing the government can do and i believe is already announced is to pinpoint key sectors to um to subsidize investment in, in particular energy transition energy transition China has announced 2023 uh, 2030 20 uh, 2060 uh, carbon emission uh, targets mm. and in order to reach that investments have to be done and investments have to be done to uh, to replace uh, the coal-powered power plants by solar panels and by windmills, so on and so forth. And this requires investment. So these are these three areas: subsidized consumption, uh, stabilized housing market by eliminating restrictions on housing purchasing, and uh, to subsidize investment in new energy. These three things. Once can be once they are done, I, I do believe the economy will run much faster. Mm. As China's economy grows bigger, last year we have seen a lot of uh, significant events like the enlargement of the BRICS and the Belt and Road uh, Forum, and uh, we're seeing Chinese yuan is also playing a bigger role um, in global trade. Uh, how do you anticipate China's economic policies and international trade relations to adapt and shape the global economic order? in the year beyond? China will continue to be a progressive force uh, in uh, stabilizing global trade and also progressive force in encouraging other countries to open up. Because China, um, from its own experience of past 45 years of reform and opening up, uh, China knows very well that through mm. opening up uh, the whole the whole world will benefit. Not only mm -hmm. the Chinese economy, the, the rest of the uh, the world will also benefit. China, China is good, like a good student. Now it's turning to become a good teacher, telling everybody, let's stay open economically. Everyone mm -hmm. will be uh, will be a, a, a beneficiary. Okay, so this is a, this is a, a one line of uh, a one one reason for China being um, being progressive in opening mm -hmm. up. Uh, China, the Chinese economy is confident in, in that the Chinese economy will not, will not lose in international competition. Some sectors for sure will move out, out of the Chinese economy. However, moving out, these sectors moving out leaves room for other sectors to emerge. So overall, overall China, Chinese economy and the Chinese policymakers overall uh, are rather confident confident 
uh, believing in that opening up uh, of international trade will e essentially and, and, and eventually benefit the Chinese economy itself. Mm. And as you mentioned earlier, China is moving up the value chain. As China continues to prioritize technological innovation, uh, what are the key areas uh, do you see the most potential for growth and investment? Well, uh, to, in my mind, uh, there are two areas for China to, um, to, to pin hope on uh, for technological progress. Number one is energy, which is not super obvious, but, 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 but it is key. It is key. Mm -hmm. The whole world is uh, in a process of energy transition. The whole world, not China, not only China. That is the whole world is now moving towards green energy. And green, by green energy, I mean uh, solar panels and uh, windmills. And the key to the transition from dirty energy to green energy or black energy to green energy is uh, storage, energy storing, yes. the storing of this, uh, this uh, intermittent uh, uh, energy, right? And mm -hmm. China is now uh, at the at, at front, international front. Frontier is a, a frontier country in designing, in 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 implementing uh, these technologies, the the green technology and their storage. So this is one area China will make a, a head start. The other area is um, what we call AI and application of AI and also communications technology. And this, uh, there are many many examples uh, in, in this regard. Uh, with, with AI, um, the delivery job of uh, our express packages uh, will be um, will, will be changed. Today in China, you see many many uh, young people busy uh, riding their electrical bikes, delivering mm. delivering uh, packages. In five years, I believe that uh, many of the electrical bikes will be replaced by um, auto auto tricycles tricycles electrical tricycles with three wheels uh, without any human pilot and these tricycles will deliver packages to our buildings to our uh, to stores right so that will be a huge labor saving uh, uh, technology how you may ask what will happen to the to our expressmen the young people who who do express work okay they mm -hmm. will they will find new jobs in other areas i, I mean they are plentiful i think the our human society usually are very good in finding ways to employ people so i i'm not uh, pessimistic i believe uh, there will be new jobs created uh, for this express uh, for these uh, young people right delivering packages so that's the second area of technological progress ai and uh, and the communication technology and the auto driving so on and so forth hmm, right china has a massive market and there is always a possibility uh, to make a fortune and uh last year uh, emerging markets are facing some significant pressure of capital outflow and that um, includes china uh, in your opinion, what is the uh, risk and reward profile for foreign investors who try to engage with China market this year? Well, um, uh, it is increasingly clear that the Chinese market proper or itself is already huge enough for international investors to stay in China. So in other words, they often call it a strategy called in China for China. 
Uh, the leading example, of course, is automobile. The automobile market, right? All the major automobile makers uh, cannot afford to to leave uh, Chinese market. So they will stay in the Chinese market. They will find a way to increase their R&D, research and development activities, and tapping, uh, tapping the, the, the huge pool of engineering talents in China. So, that, so that's the area of opportunity for multinationals. Stay in China and tap on, tapping the, 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 the engineering and R&D capacity and then use China as um, as a, a, as a basis for their global research and also for their uh, enhancing their technology. So that's the new that's new opportunities for multinationals. Coming up next, in the backdrop of geopolitical shifts, technological advancements, and the ongoing fragile recovery, the world economy stands at a critical juncture. Nations are grappling with inflationary pressures, supply chain disruptions, and the imperative of sustainable growth. Joining us next is an eminent economist, Professor Thomas Sargent, Nobel laureate in economics. His insights are invaluable in navigating the complexities of the economic terrain. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Well, Professor Sargent, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. How can China maintain its productivity? What are the keys? Is, is when you're behind, the first thing you do is you, you, you don't have to learn about new things. You have to learn about things that are new to you that other people are doing that are better than what you're doing. So the United States did that in the 19th century. And we weren't very good about respecting intellectual property rights. We, we took things from Britain without, we didn't obey copyright and patent laws until we started getting some intellectual. So we did that, but we copied a long time before we did our own innovations. Economic historians study that, but so that's a kind of doing something new to you, you know. So then, but then now, once you've exhausted that, it's R and D, you know, it's research and development, and that's why emphasizing training math, science, you know, physics, chemistry, biology, and you've walk around here, you'll see world-class scientists from China talking to world-class scientists from other places. And, and 
and they're exchanging ideas. Amazing. Um, and it's beautiful to have these kind of exchange of ideas. Yeah. Um, but one thing China is concerned about is the U.S. restriction on the uh, semiconductors to China. Yeah. To China be very deeply concerned about this. Because Me too. The United States says uh, is it, it is to prevent military use for national security concerns, but it is not very convincing to China. What is your take? Look, China is a big market for these chips. The, the Intel company and the NVIDIA company, they don't want these restrictions and they've lobbied against it. Somebody's lobbied in favor of it. Um, but I don't think it's in those companies' interests. And, um, and guess what? Uh, if, we, if we shut down, if China has lots of really good engineers. And uh, if we completely cut, if the United States completely cuts China off from chips, they're not going to be cut off, you know, for more than, what are they going to, three, five, 10 years maximum. And then they're going to be building chips that are better, that are as good or different or better than our chips. And so I think we should be thinking longer ahead. In the past three years, um, new trade barriers has tripled, according to IMF, to uh, nearly 3,000 last year. Yeah. How would this fragmentation and trade restrictions impact our growth and international collaboration? It's not going to help. You could say, was it a political take or is it geopolitical? No, it's, for me, it's economics. And, you know, and it's selfish. You know, when I say selfish, is a large percentage of what I consume was made in China or some other country, okay? Like uh, my computer, you know, my phone. It was, my phone was made in who knows. Actually, you know, if you look, and this is a sad thing, if you look at a phone or something and it says made in China, it actually wasn't, part of it was made in China. There was a big supply chain and big parts of it were made all over the world. You know, you know, it's amazing. Uh, there's economists, actually an economist in China taught me this. Um, uh, if, you, if you actually look, uh, there's trade all over. And, um, and uh, so when they talk about a supply chain, um, and if you actually, people study where the value added in that phone was created. It was all over the world, all sorts of, people, but when you break up that supply chain, there's still going to be a supply chain. Um, and, you know, you know, people have written about this, you know, the, if it says made in China, um, you know, and that chip wasn't made in the United States, it's going to be made some, someplace else, or maybe it'll be made in China and something else that used to be made in China will be made someplace else. But businessmen are very smart about that. How do you make up the Fed's response to this inflation? Uh, how much score would you give to them in handling this situation? And it seems there are positive signs. It is steering the American economy towards a soft landing, isn't it? Okay, so here's, here's the thing. The, the Federal Reserve is not as powerful as, um, as many people think. And um, it, it goes back a long time. And, and here's the reason. If you actually ask, ask what the Fed does, or, or what, it, what it's supposed to do. Um, it's not very much. They were, um, they, were, they were managing the federal government's debt portfolio. 
So the, the U.S. federal government, um, for the last 23 years after President Clinton left, it's, it's been issuing government debt. Mm. And our government, our debt GDP ratio has, has grown, mm. um, you know, in, in good times and bad times, okay? So it, it issues more debt. And what debt is, is the U.S. government issues bonds of uh, various dur duration. Uh, it also prints money, mm. but that's a, that's a debt. You know, U.S. dollars are are a promise that if you come in, I'll give you a dollar. You know, so and mm. they issue treasury bills, longer term things, and all the Federal Reserve does is it determines the mixture of that debt. Mm. It determines how much is very short term, like money, bank reserves, or longer term, you know, ten years, you know, treasury, you know, three months, one year. Mm a whole maturity structure, it mm. issues, but they're IOUs, and the Fed has a portfolio, mm. and you can read it, and it, it does that portfolio. And that's all it did before 2008. And then after 2008, it started, it started buying other things, which it, we didn't think it was QE. supposed to buy. It, it bought QE, it, it bought, bought mortgage-backed securities. Yeah. And it essentially started operating as a hedge fund which it was never supposed to do before. So it kind of changed. Mm. Um, so it basically printed money and then bought mortgage-backed securities that, no, that it thought nobody else wanted. Mm. And it, um, you know, it, it turned out to be a good gamble for them. In the United States now, the um, government expenditures seem to have risen permanently and mm. taxes haven't. Mm. So we're printing out you know, we're at the peak of a business cycle and we're, we're issuing lots of debt. The Fed has to manage that. Mm. And, and essentially, that big increase and the way the Fed coped with it, that's what led to inflation. Mm. Um, you know, the Fed kind of, it, it kind of misjudged, it, it, it didn't expect, it didn't expect us to be overwhelmed by this amount of debt. So mm. it's kind of learned how to do it. But fundamentally, you know, Federal Reserve chairman used to say this. They, they could say, I, well, I can only do so much. You know, and I can't control the debt, and, and, and um, I can't stop an, inf an inflation mm. unless you get the debt under control. And Chairman Powell has started, he started to say that. So that's my answer. That's all for today's Biz Talk. It's clear that we're entering a pivotal year for the global economy. The resurgence of economic activity is accompanied by challenges such as inflationary pressures, supply chain disruptions, and evolving geopolitical dynamics. The conversations with our esteemed guests have underscored the complexity of the economic landscape. Staying attuned to these economic dynamics and fostering resilience will be crucial for individuals, businesses, and policymakers as they navigate the global economy in the year ahead.